0: The CNBC app. Global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected. Stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
1: A warm welcome to what's going to be a very busy show here on Scorebox with Karen, Jeff and myself, Steve. These are your headlines. Asian markets jump after the Fed Chair Jerome Powell once again soothes inflation and valuation concerns, spurring Wall Street to another intraday comeback.
2: It's true that overall asset prices, I would say, are, are somewhat elevated. Uh, at the same time, we have a very resilient banking system, and we, we spent a lot of time making the, the capital markets more, more resilient as well. So, An old hand who
1: happens to be very, very rich as well hits out at the new trick. Berkshire Hathaway's vice chairman Charlie Munger criticizes SPACs, Bitcoin, Tesla and Robin Hood as GameStop shares surge 100% in 90 minutes.
3: Shares and stand charts struggle after the earnings miss Uh, today with the lender posting a 57% fall in full-year profit as impairments more than double. We'll speak to the CEO, Bill Winters, in just a few minutes' time. Johnson & Johnson's single-shot COVID jab looks set to get the green light in the United States with an average efficacy rate of 66% and offering almost total protection against hospitalisation and death.
0: And President Biden signs an executive order to address the semiconductor shortage, which is impacting industries from car building to medical supplies, aiming to streamline global supply chains.
1: Right, it's been a big recovery for some brewery stocks of the world's biggest, Anheuser-Busch, but it's still down, uh, what is it now, 6.7% year-to-date, over one-year period down 14.5%. I've got a full-year 2020 set of figures out from Anheuser-Busch. Revenue, though, in the fourth quarter grew by 4.5%, positively impacted by continued volume recovery and revenue of um, growth of 2.7%. 2.7%. Full year 2020 revenue, though, declined 3.7%. Um, let's just have a look at some of the uh, the breakdowns there. They are saying they expect the top and bottom line results in full year 2021 to improve meaningfully uh, versus the full year 2020. I mean, of course, they're saying in an extremely challenging year, our teams rose to the occasion, finished year with momentum in our key markets by leveraging our fundamental strengths as a company and capturing the benefits. Uh, of investments we've been making over several years. Cost of sales, this is very interesting. Cost of sales uh, in the fourth quarter increased by 7.9%, um, which is interesting in the fact that the cost of getting the sales out there, uh, of course, COVID-related, um, in uh, perhaps denting the margins somewhat there as well. But let's um, see if I can find you one more line for this group as well. Um, profit, normalised profit attributable to equity holders was 2 0.15 billion US dollars in the fourth quarter 2020, and we'll have plenty more on those figures when our US colleagues speak to the AB InBev CEO Carlos Brito, later today. That is an exclusive interview at 11:45 CET.
0: this morning. As you heard in the headlines, we've seen a 57% fall in pre-tax profit for 2020, coming in less than expected of $1.6 billion. Credit impairments more than doubled on the year. The lender announced it would resume dividend payments and complete a share buyback program that was suspended in April. Uh, Standard Chartered expects pre-pandemic growth rates to mostly resume in 2022. We're very pleased to have Bill Winters with us, the CEO of Standard Chartered. Bill, a very good morning to you. Um, Let me just go in on the headline here, because it is a headline miss uh, based on the uh, average uh, consensus of the analysts. Can you talk to us a little bit about the period that you're reporting on and how you see current trading?
2: Yeah, maybe start with the, with the uh, most important part, which is that we are getting back to normal. Current trading has been, has been reasonably robust. So in, uh, certainly in, in in our Asian markets that have uh, done a a pretty good job of containing the pandemic, uh, we're back to growth momentum, which is uh, very similar or or even better in some cases uh, than the pre pandemic levels. That's very encouraging. Uh, We're seeing a, a return to normalcy across most of our markets, even those that are still in the grips of the, of the pandemic. I think 2020 was a difficult year for, uh, for analysts to try to navigate through. Uh, basically, we're, we're delighted with the relative resilience of our balance sheet. I mean, when we think back to where we were a few years back, had we had the kind of uh, credit buffeting uh, that we uh, had this year uh, with a book that we had three years ago, we would be in, in, in a quite challenging shape right now. But in fact, we've, we've got a good, clean balance sheet. Uh, we've got a growing customer base, a growing client base. Uh, we've had a good recovery in, in key areas of, of wealth management. Continued strength in, in financial markets through the fourth quarter, and we think that puts us in, in pretty good stead as we as we come into uh, 2021 and uh, and get back to a year that, that by the end of the year should feel a little bit more like normal.
0: Could you put a bit more flesh on the bones for us on the credit book here? Obviously, impairments doubled over the period. Um, I, I guess uh, some will be asking, what does that mean about the quality? of the loan book at this point, and what do you think those impairments are gonna look like as we run through the rest of this year?
4: So the, the, the bulk of the loan impairment that we took this year was in the first half of the year. So we, we got ahead of the curve uh, in terms of provisioning on the back of the, the onset of the pandemic in, in Q1, and then the uh, obviously the, the continued deterioration in Q2. Uh, so we took quite substantial provisions in the first half of the year. The second half of the year was, is much closer to normal. And uh, when we look at the, the overall quality of the book, we've had a reduction in the, the designation for credit assets that, that we put into the, let, let's keep an eye on it category. We call it early alert. Uh, and that's actually dropped by uh, $3 billion or close to a quarter uh, in the fourth quarter, which is <clears throat> probably the clearest indication that the credit quality overall in the book is improving uh, relative to what we feared might be the case. Now, I'll say that we, we were very heavily provided in the first half of the year. We haven't had much by way of actual losses coming through. And I think that's something that you've seen in, in common with a number of, in particular, the Asian banks, which were, the provisions were high, uh, but the the economic uh, impact of that, through to actual uh, actual loan losses, has been pretty muted. Bill, you've um,
0: you've you've circled on a target of uh, getting the ROTE up from three percent to seven percent by twenty twenty three. I have to say, most of the banks that we've been talking to through the earnings are signaling something in excess of 10% as their target. Is 7% ambitious enough? And why aren't you looking for something stronger?
4: You know, our, our target is very clearly 10%. And we, we're, we're very clear that, uh, as was the case pre pandemic, uh, we continue to think that we can achieve a 10% plus return on tangible equity. What we've said is that uh, on, between three and 10 is seven. Uh, and that we want to get there by 2023. So just you know, two and a bit years from now. Uh, so no, we're, we're absolutely uh, maintaining our target of 10%. And when we look at, at how we how we get there, uh, we get there by growing at 5 to 7% uh, uh, in terms of our income. That's something that we had done consistently pre-pandemic. We clearly took a step back, in particular, as a result of much lower interest rates. Uh, that's a, a reset at a lower level. But that 5 to 7% growth rate, we think, continues to be the, the appropriate target for, for standard charter in terms of income. And we, we can do that uh, from this lower base. Now, we've indicated that income in 2021 will probably be about flat relative to 2020 because the full impact of the rate reductions a year ago is still flowing through. But as that flows through completely, uh, we will have clearly a, a, an uptick in income in the second half of the year is our expectation. Uh, and that will flow through to that 5 to 7% consistently. We have maintained that we can do that with expenses uh, that are rising considerably slower, so less than inflation, uh, that we can do that with our risk-weighted assets or our capital uh, growing at, at less than our, uh, our, our overall balance sheet and less than income. Uh, So the the combination of of faster income growth, contained expense growth, which we've done consistently for five years, capital discipline, which we've done consistently for five years, Uh, we think together, obviously, with being able to resume uh, dividends and and, and we've indicated that we're prepared to buy back stock, if that's the appropriate way to return capital to shareholders, that combination will get us to a 10% plus ROTE in in the medium term.
3: Bill it's Karen jumping in. Good morning to you. Let me ask you a little bit more about that inflation interest rate environment because we heard from J.P. yesterday. He was talking about uh, getting inflation back to that 2% level. Also saying it may be a journey that could take three years. Do you think you're going to have to weather very low interest rates for three years?
4: Uh, we do. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we, we'd be delighted if, uh, obviously, for the right reasons, interest rates were to pick up in the meantime. But that's not what we're planning on. Uh, I think we're expecting a prolonged period of low interest rates, exactly as, as the Fed and other central banks have indicated. So uh, we're not going to get the, uh, the the free pass uh, with, a, with a rise in interest rates. We're going to have to go back to growing our non-financing income in well in excess of the 5 to 7% level, which we have done consistently uh, for the past five years, but for the the two or three-quarter blip around COVID.
3: A lot of us are curious about the pent-up demand story, and Asia's been much further ahead in terms of getting back on its feet. Are you getting any clue that there there is an element of savings being built up and uh, people who have saved that money are then willing to spend it on credit cards or to draw down on savings once economies are back open?
4: Yeah, I, mean, I think we're, where we're seeing it uh, first and foremost is, is in a, a lack of loan delinquencies. So now, there, there were various forms of debt moratoria or, or payment holidays that were in place over the course of, of 2020, in some cases, even into 2021. Uh, but as those have, have come off, the uh, the consumers uh, are overwhelmingly willing and able to uh, to get current again on their debts. Uh, so that, that's the clearest indication that there's savings in the system. Uh, but I think we see it in terms of deposit balances. We see it in terms of, of corporate activity. Uh, m a activity is picking up. Uh, it was difficult to complete a merger uh, or acquisition during the COVID days, simply because uh, due diligence was, was was very difficult to do without traveling or, or visiting sites. Uh, as those restrictions uh, ease, and of course it's not completely eased in most of our markets, but it is easing. Uh, the level of MA activity is picking up, the level of cross-border financing and investment uh, will pick up over the course of this year. So yeah, I think there is a, a fair amount of pent up demand. Possibly that's gonna translate into a, a, a short-term bump in inflation. Uh, but I think the, the, the disinflationary forces uh, as as uh, Fed Chairman Powell has indicated, are still pretty structural. Charlie Munger's worried, Bill, about the
1: situation, and about what he calls a stupidity uh, and cultures that are encouraging people to gamble on the markets as well. Peter Costello, who runs the Sovereign Wealth Fund over in Australia, thinks central bank actions have left them with little firepower and could create a broader market crash as well. Do you share those concerns, uh, given what you just said earlier uh, about interest rates staying pretty much where they are for the next couple of years?
4: There are indications that the broader uh, stock market is frothy, uh, whether it's uh, the, the various valuation multiples would indicate that the markets are, certainly some aspects are topish. That does not apply to banks. I'll add very quickly. Uh, banks are, are uh, as a sector, I would say value stocks generally uh, don't look like they're very fully valued right now, but that's that's the nature of, of the, uh, the the speculative hype at, that we're in right now. Uh, I, am I concerned in the short term? No, uh, I think there's uh, the, the combination of ongoing uh, very accommodative monetary policy and what will appear to be very substantial uh, fiscal impetus, most specifically in the U.S., uh, as we're seeing, and we'll see where the Biden package comes out finally, but in, in any case, it's likely to be a very material fiscal injection into the U.S. economy, which will help drive economic growth this year, could put a little bit of a floor under the deflationary pressures or maybe even give us a, a short-term pickup in inflation. Uh, but uh, for that to translate into real market volatility uh, would probably require some other exogenous shock
1: banks, which I, I hear you, Bill, the C T one ratios look great across the board here. And you mentioned value stocks, which I also uh, concur with. But you didn't mention technology stocks as well. And what really worries me is that there is a whole legion of investors, sorry, uh, punters out there. I'm not going to call them investors who are concentrating on a very small number of names. Is it possible that when that domino falls, that could affect all those better areas that are better valued that you just mentioned?
4: Yes, yeah, always possible. I mean, we we all remember the the, the dot com bubble very well, and when the, when the bubble burst, of course, it, it, it hit the the technology sector, the the the, com, the dot coms very hard. Uh, but it spilled over to the broader economy, and then some would say even led to a, a, a what with the benefit of hindsight was a relatively mild recession, although it felt uh, it felt pretty acute at the time. Uh, so yes, yeah, possible. Uh, but the I think there's there's still a, a very active debate over over what the value is for some of these these uh, tech stocks or tech giants. And when we look at the at the at the the, the follow through to the dot com bubble and the number of companies that that felt bubbleish at the time that have gone on to have uh, market values in excess of a trillion dollars, uh, who's to say that they were were not grotesquely undervalued at the peak of the dot com bubble rather than the other way around? Uh, thankfully, I'm not a stockbroker.
1: Always a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, and taking all our questions. Bill Winters, the CEO of Standard Chartered. Shares in GameStop, again, (sighs) shares in GameStop more than doubled in the final 90 minutes of Wednesday's trading session. So if you don't think this is madness, I'll just say it again. Shares in GameStop more than doubled in the final 90 minutes of Wednesday's trading session. I'm sure you were all investors out there who were getting involved in this stock. Just investors, yeah? As volatility returned to the favourite stock of the Reddit trading forum, Wall Street Bets, uh, they continued to skyrocket in extended trade. GameStop announced the departure of the CFO, Jim Bell, initially sending the stock lower. Business Insider reported Bell was pushed out by a new board member and Chewy.com founder, Ryan Cohen. Half an hour before the rally started, Cohen tweeted an image of a McDonald's ice cream cone with a frog emoji. Is this real? Is, this, is it April Fool's Day or something? <laughs> I came into this business to talk about investment and people's wealth over a long-term period, over about economy, about politics, which I have studied extensively as well. I didn't come in thinking that it was normal behaviour for a stock to double in extended trade and then someone to tweet. I'll, I'll finish the read because Karen's peaked by this one as well. An image of McDonald's ice cream cone with a frog emoji. Leaving investors dissecting his message. Wow. Yeah, that's what we need to dissect. A frog emoji and an ice cream cone to work out whether we buy or sell a stock. It's yeah, that's It's just the another
3: colourful way of describing some excess in the market. I mean, if you think about what you've covered in your lifetime. What does that mean? You've covered other excess too. You've covered the dot-com bubble. You've covered the, the XM markets before the crash yep. around the financial crisis. Yep. This is part yep. of another journey around excess. So you
1: agree that we're in a bubble?
3: I think we can all see bubbles in the market. Whether we've got well, one over bubble can't. that's going to Jay
1: Powell pop can't.
3: the, the market do index. Know, I think Jay that's Powell can't. Do you know what? Pistis.
1: I think the. I, I remember an interview with Jose Manuel Barroso a few years ago when he was the European Commission President. I don't know if Jeff can come in or we're allowed to do this, but I remember that interview, and I remember saying, "But you know that the EU's got this huge problem here, but you keep saying everything's fantastic. There is no existential crisis." Do you know what he said to me off camera? And I don't think I'm giving away anything indiscreet. He said, "What do you expect me to do?" Of course, it's my job. I'm the European Commission President. I, of course I see problems, but what do you expect me to say? My job is to build confidence in this institution. And do you know, I really respected him for his candid, candid nature there on that one as well. And I think it's the same with the central banks. They're so terrified about the pandemic, rightly so. They're so terrified about the economic consequences that they can't see the debt bubble that's building up, that they can't see the, the bubble that's building up in stock because they basically see it as a problem which is secondary or tertiary further down the line.
3: I think that can be very black and white when you say central bank. Are doing the wrong thing and they're creating inflation because they're not doing the wrong thing. Here. What I
1: said is they're concentrating yeah. on the clear and present danger, but they are creating other problems further down the line. So, it's so, not so, black and white. So,
3: back at you then, what, what would you do if you were a central bank? Would you, would you stop the uh, all the stimulus at I this would, point?
1: No, but I would probably stop the experiment in negative interest rates because I don't think it's creating inflation, which they were supposed to do in areas such as. And it's destroyed well, a whole. It's destroyed thing. a load of savers in Germany in their income and it's destroyed the pensions industry going forward, potentially, because there won't be an income for uh, aging demographic across the board. So yeah, Yeah, I would probably end the experiment in negative rates.
3: Well, what about for the Fed who have not gone negative? What, What should they do?
1: Well, I think, aren't we getting a $1.9 trillion stimulus in the United States? Didn't we just have, Congress. hang on a second, hang on, you went there. Didn't we just have new home sales surging at the start of the year, 923,000 pays, sending lumber through the roof, copper through the roof as well. If that isn't an inflationary and strong stimulus coming from the economy, then what is? But
3: that's not the central bank. That money is coming through Congress. So it's what would you the, do if you're it's, Jay park It's the economy. It's the economy. People so, aren't so buying. So you raise l- interest rates because you've got that stimulus. I, coming I didn't through.
1: say that. I said that we have ter- secondary and tertiary problems further down the line, which could be bigger than the problems we've got now. Potentially.
3: Well, unfortunately, the problem is I don't think you can fix all parts of the economy. Uh, it's it's so an issue about where you, if you stimulate, fix one part, but
1: you create a greater I problem later on. I think that is
3: the unintended consequence, and it is a fine balance between allowing the stimulus to go through the system so you don't have economic scarring, you get the economy back on its feet, then slamming off some of that stimulus so you don't spook investors, but you stop asset bubbles. It's an incredibly difficult job.
1: Yeah, uh, and they're creating more problems by increasing the stock of debt in the world to the levels it's at now, levels we've never seen historically.
3: But what's the answer? You, you don't stimulate, you, you don't put economies back on their feet, you, you don't take the is what the is answer considered necessary action? creating
1: of, uh, hundreds of thousands of zombie companies that really couldn't finance themselves in the real world? Is that the answer? Because we still have those zombie companies left in Europe from the last crisis.
3: Well, I think the United States is a slightly different market where you do get the consolidation that takes place if you have somewhat of a zombie company.
1: Elon Musk has once again shown his clout on Twitter triggering a 25% rally. 25% rally one day, boom, like that, in cryptocurrency Dogecoin. Wasn't this one set up as a joke, Dogecoin? Anyway, uh, the Tesla founder and CEO tweeted an image of the Dogecoin mascot dog landing on the moon. I can't read this stuff anymore. To the moon has become a popular catchphrase on Reddit implying that the price of an asset is going to see a huge increase. Here's someone you should listen to. Berkshire Hathaway's vice chairman, Charlie Munger, has lashed out at cryptocurrencies, overvalued stocks, SPACs and Robinhood. The longtime business partner of Warren Buffett said he doesn't know what's worse, Bitcoin hitting $50,000 or Tesla potentially breaking above $1 trillion in market capitalization. Munger said the trading platforms like Robinhood are luring in novice investors. He also chimed in on the boom of blank check acquisition companies, saying the world would be better off without SPACs.
3: Meantime, Fed Chair Jerome Powell has warned that it may take three years for inflation to exceed two percent as he continued to deliver a dovish message to lawmakers on Capitol Hill. Thomas Cosberg joins us, a senior U.S. economist at Pictet Wealth Management. Thomas, you can hear us having a robust argument around the studio set about inflation bubbles, how the market is positioned at this point in the face of further stimulus. And as we heard from Jay Powell, that stimulus may go on for many years to come. Should we be concerned? Do you think inflation is just around the corner? And where does that leave market bubbles as well?
5: Right. Um, yeah. Uh, the bottom line is that I think it's more likely to have asset price inflation than consumer price inflation, even though we might have a short-lived consumer price inflation in the spring. Uh, but I do think uh, that, uh, yeah, despite uh, the magnitude of the fiscal package, 1.9 trillion dollars, uh, I think uh, that we're, we're, we are, you know, the the inflation burst that we might see in the spring will be will be short lived. Why is that? Because I think, you know, there's still some consumer anxiety. Uh, I also do not think that commodity prices will feed into core prices. And with regards to the to the Fed. Um, actually what you, you see is that, uh, when it goes, when, when money goes into financial assets, it doesn't, doesn't go into the real economy necessarily. Um, so I'm actually quite serene about, uh, the inflation risk. However, two things to mention, uh, one is that if there were a further infrastructure package, I think then we could start looking at a different, uh, equation. And point number two is that we still have to be worried about the confidence and the trust in the financial system and in economic policymaking, because, you know, there's a buildup of debt. Uh, confidence so far is actually quite strong, even though you see, uh, you know, at the, uh, uh, at the edge of the system uh, some gradual erosion in confidence, but confidence is still there. Uh, but, you know, things can turn on a dime there, and uh, we, need, we need trust in the financial system, and we have to be careful with economic policymaking, not going to extreme.
3: Uh, Thomas, what we have seen in the last couple of weeks as market rates have spiked, it has taken some of the the excess out of uh, particular stocks and parts of the market where there's been rapid momentum in recent months. I want to ask you about the outlook then from here because it feels as though we could be in for a couple of bumpy quarters on this bounce back recovery story, a little bit like what we saw last year when we saw a plunge in some of the demand numbers based on the services economy being largely shut. It doesn't feel like normal numbers are going to come through. We're going to get a spike potentially as economies open up and then a bit more normalization, maybe more spikes down the road. How do market rates weather that storm that could be coming?
5: Well, regarding long term rates, uh, I think what's going on right now is that there is, you know, the bond market is testing the Fed. Uh, Jerome Powell, on, uh, well, you know, two days ago was quite serene about long term rates. Yesterday, he showed a bit more cautiousness by mentioning, you know, those three years, um, you know, insisting on three years before the, at least three years before the first rate hike. So he starts to lean against. Uh, the rise in long term yields, but you, you may have to do a bit more um you know the the bond market may may again test uh, the fed uh, in my in my view now I, I do not think the fed's tolerance uh, to the rise in long term yields is is that elevated. Uh, you know the u s economy has a lot of debt it's very sensitive to long term rates. I think the Fed will start to lean against the rise in long term yields uh, uh, more than it ha- it has uh, uh, in, in in the past few days uh, also uh, you know we need the housing market so if you see a strong rise in long term rates uh, you, you could see, you know, a bumpy road ahead uh, for the housing uh, housing market. So I, see, I think that's also another consideration. And to come back to your point about the bumpiness of the recovery, yeah, I think it will be bumpy. There'll be stop and go in the reopening, uh, especially until we get full vaccination, which is still not expected before the summer. Uh, and also, yeah, uh, bumpiness also coming from uh, you know uh, financial market movements, including long-term yields.
0: Thomas, what do you think the Fed's tolerance is for falling asset prices? I asked the question because we lived through a Greenspan era where the Fed very clearly focused on keeping the market pumped up. We've had a Trump administration that's been very focused on keeping the market pumped up. What do you think Jay Powell is going to do if we begin to see markets top out and roll over as they basically anticipate no further QE?
5: Right. Um, and, you know, I think the Fed's guiding principle is first do no harm. They are worried about a recession. You know, they are worried about taper tantrum. They're worried about what happened in 2008. I, I think that they absolutely want no issue uh, out there. Uh, and that means further and further accommodation. And if there's a problem, I think they'll do more, more QE, including if uh, I, I, there's too much of a rise in long term yields uh, and that starts to destabilize equity markets. I think the Fed could could well intervene and find, you know, an excuse maybe in the labor market, maybe in, I don't know, in inflation, maybe somewhere else uh, to do more accommodation. The Fed, you know, we're trapped in, in high accommodation and that's likely to continue for some time.
0: I think you've nailed it, Thomas. Thank you so much for that. And it uh, feeds back Thank into you. the conversation we've been having on the programme over recent days. Thomas Kostag, the senior US economist at Pictet Wealth Management. Steve, there you have it. The Fed is focused on keeping asset prices higher.
1: And as, uh, as he mentioned there, the disconnect between the money going into the real economy and financial markets is a worrying disparity. Uh, coming up on the show, demand in two key, key Asian economies. Uh, Uh, Boosts trade in LNG over 2020, despite COVID restrictions. We'll have more next.
5: Listen
0: to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts.
1: Welcome to Scorebox. Box, your headlines. Shares in standard chartered uh, struggle after the lender posts a 57% fall in full-year profit as impairments more than double. The CEO, Bill Winters, tells this show the bank is well placed.
4: We're delighted with the relative resilience of our balance sheet. And when we think back to where we were a few years back, had we had the kind of uh, credit buffeting uh, that we uh, had this year, uh, with a book that we had three years ago, we would be in, in, in a quite challenging shape right now.
1: Revenue at AB InBev falls almost 4% over 2020, but the fizz returns in the fourth quarter as the beer market forecasts a stronger year ahead. Our US colleagues will speak to the CEO, Carlos Brito, in an exclusive interview at 11.45 CET. COVID claims uh, hit Europe's second largest insurer as AXA posts an 18% slide in net income, with business interruptions and event cancellations costing $1.5 billion. Asian markets jump after Fed Chair Jerome Powell once again soothes inflation and valuation concerns, spurring Wall Street to another intraday comeback.
2: It's true that overall asset prices, I would say, are are somewhat elevated. Uh, at the same time, we have a very resilient banking system, and we, we spend a lot of time making the, the capital markets more resilient as well. So-
0: So welcome, back. Let's um, pick up on the uh, buyer numbers this morning. CEO Werner Bauman putting out figures here for the full year and, of course, the uh, fourth quarter. And the headline on group sales, 41.4 billion euros impacted by negative currency effects of 1.94 billion euros. The uh, group says the crop science and pharmaceuticals uh, divisions report stable Operational business, consumer health also sees strong growth. The outlook for 2021: positive momentum and solid operational growth, stable earnings at uh, constant currencies. In terms of the dividend, uh, two euros per share proposed here. Remember, 2019 saw the dividend at 2.80, so a reflection of a, a shift, uh, a lower dividend payout expected at two euros. Core earnings per share at six. Euros spot 39 cents. Um, the headlines earnings per share, um, at uh, minus 10.68 euros here. The, uh, group reporting a 20 or expecting a 2021 a bit down margin before sales of around 27% with a, a sales outlook of 42 to 43 billion euros, which would be something like a, a 3% increase here. It's been um, a a series of challenging quarters uh, for Bayer with margin in particular under pressure as they've lost some share in uh, some of those higher margin uh, crop science seed and corn businesses. Uh, But, of course, one comfort, I think, for investors, uh, perhaps two comforts, in fact. One is Bayer getting involved in the manufacture of uh, mRNA um, COVID vaccines. And the other, of course, is that we now look like we have a near-term resolution on the claims over Roundup uh, with that deal reached at the beginning of February uh, for a $2 billion uh, holding sum to meet future Roundup claims here. So we'll continue to pour over these numbers here and no doubt Anetta will weigh in a little later on on what she sees in these buyer figures. Guys,
1: Thanks, Jeff. Uh, trade in liquefied natural gas, uh, global LNG, held steady at 360 million tons in 2020, according to a new report from Shell. A recovery in demand in China and India, along with an uptick in winter buying, helped offset the impact of Covid restrictions. The study also forecasts LNG demand will grow to 700 million tons a year by 2040, thanks in part to lower domestic gas production and new emissions targets in Asia. Delighted to welcome back to the show, actually, Martin Wetzler, who is the director of Integrated Gas and New Energies over at Shell. Martin, you and I have talked about LNG and gas and its role it plays going forward many times over the years as well. Uh, and, And you and your colleagues have taught me a lot as well. But given the huge volatility we're seeing in price, I mean, record lows to six year highs just in the last year. Is there a stable investment platform that can be created when you've got such extreme volatility?
6: Yeah, I think, so. I think the stable investment platform is really created by the fundamentals of the market rather than by the gyration of any uh, seasonally uh, seasonal factor that, that can lead uh, send the price up or down. And the fundamental of the market is really that our customers and the countries that we serve um, are designing their own energy transitions. They're deciding that they move, need to move away urgently from coal and they're turning to a large extent to LNG as a solution. And as long as that fundamental demand growth that we believe is going to be in the order of 3.5% a year for the next 20 years, doubling the LNG market by 2040, um, is going to provide the impetus for at least the prices across the cycle to reward investment, but also to remain affordable for consumers. But clearly, depending on seasonality and market circumstances, the prices can be up or down from the average. But that, you know, that is just requires you know, good trading and good optimization, which is de- definitely something that at uh, Shell we have a lot of experience in. Um, so now we believe that market is fundamentally ripe for further growth and investment, and it's driven fundamentally by customer and country choices. The problem is, uh, and, and I'm, I'm,
1: sh- I'm sure you've read or seen a pricey of Bill Gates's most recent book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. I've just finished it myself. And Bill makes the point is, yeah, gas clearly is cleaner than coal and oil uh, and lower carbon emissions. and oil. But if we want to invest in technology that will get us to removing 51 billion tons of carbon equivalent by 2050, then investing in gas, which would take us to 2030, 2040 targets, won't get us there because the investors won't want to invest in two sets of technology. He has questions about gas and its role to get us to where we need to be in 2050, Martin.
6: Yeah, and I understand those questions. And and if you're in Western Europe or in the US, maybe the story feels a bit counterintuitive. But the story about LNG growth, first of all, is very much an Asian story, where there's huge population growth, economic growth. There's an enormous coal-fired power base um, uh, and the energy demand growth is still very substantial going forward. And of course, air pollution is another big issue. Um, so, and as you know, CO2 emissions are cumulative, so it really matters what you do in the 2020s and 2030s. Um, and the readily available and affordable answer to Asia getting on that energy transition today is natural gas. Clearly, as, the, as time moves on, as we need to get closer to, to 2050, we will need to make sure that these solutions are actually net zero. And that potential is also there. If you commit to the infrastructure right now, there will be solutions such as biogas, such as hydrogen, but also such as actually net zero natural gas, which you can achieve by applying car- carbon capture and storage, by using nature-based offsets. Um, um, and so I think the combination of these net zero solutions um, will make sure that these gas systems can be net zero by 2050. people need to get going now and the affordable and available solution today for particularly for asia is natural gas
1: martin you've you've mentioned asia and and quite rightly so they are seeing the greatest growth in demand the greatest growth in transportation questions as well but what about europe and you're in an ambiguous position here in europe and let's make no bones about it shell has had a big role in Nord Stream too uh, but you've got a big role in lng and we know that necessarily sometimes those two collide certainly politically and have done very much under the last administration what is the answer for Europe? Is it LNG or is it more Russian gas?
6: Well, I think the uh, answer for Europe is, is probably both. And perhaps just to, uh, for the record, we're a lender to, uh, to Nord Stream 2, and we do believe the project is uh, helpful for Europe's energy security. If you look at Europe, the story is a bit different than Asia. In Europe, the gas demand in the next 20 years is actually not going to grow. It will likely shrink. But the European gas production will shrink even faster by quite a lot. Uh, And that means Europe will need to import more and more gas. And if you're going to be in that position, you want options. Your energy security depends on being able to buy gas from many sources, from North Africa, from Russia, from LNG, and and buy the cheapest gas in the market on any given day. And for that reason, having lots of LNG-receiving terminals in Europe, but also having good pipeline optionality to the main exporters is important for Europe's energy security.
3: Can I ask you a little bit more about that competitive playing field? Because Qatar is working on the largest LNG uh, project, uh, and that's uh, slated for production late twenty twenty five. But already, some major players are concerned about aggressive marketing from Qatar in the lead up to that project coming online. Are concerned about the sort of market share they'll be going after. What's it going to do in coming years?
6: Well, if you look at the um, at the projection that we're putting out today, um, we're actually seeing the LNG market being relatively tight in the 2020s, even in the period of time that the Qatari expansions will be coming on stream. They'll be very competitive, Qatar has very cheap gas and can build these energy trains at at very competitive uh, cost. So it will be competitive gas, but it's coming into a market that is post-COVID, that is recovery, uh, building on the world economic recovery post-COVID, and that we believe will need all the energy that Qatar can produce, including the expansion, and all the energy that the rest of the world can produce. I do think uh, building on the recent volatility in LNG prices, there's renewed interest in the market in long-term arrangements. People have become a bit wary about buying too much on spot. Um, uh, And so my sense is these Qatari volumes and other volumes, such as our Canadian volumes, uh, will be well absorbed by a market that is hungry for energy.
0: Yeah, Martin, just to pick up on some of those points. I mean, how do we resolve the issue of the uh, infrastructure fragility that's been exposed uh, both by the pandemic and, of course, this um, Arctic weather we've seen in Texas? I mean, as you point out, Asian LNG prices have spiked a thousand percent over the course of the last year, which is incredible volatility and very difficult to manage. And then, uh, Texas, uh, illustrated the weakness of supply chains because deliveries were effectively halted, forcing the government in the US to uh, impose by diktat requests for gas for human usage. So just talk a little bit about who pays for improvements in this infrastructure and how we get there. Yeah, it's definitely been a,
6: a remarkable year. Let me. Your point on the LNG um, uh, side is actually. Uh, I, I think uh, the the situation has not been as dire. There've been a few weeks of, uh, of of relative shortage of LNG cargoes in um, in January that were always resolved without the lights going out anywhere. Um, and indeed, some of it was COVID related, where the Panama Canal had um, had, had delays, and uh, and so my sense is that was a relatively one-off event that got resolved between buyers and sellers. Um, the Texas situation was, of course, very much more significant in terms, of, in the sense that the lights and the heating systems did go out and caused significant human misery um, in, in the state. Um, but, but, but this is really, an, uh, to, to me, um, uh, just an element about being prepared. And this was, of course, a really, really freak incident, the, the temperatures going so low in Texas. Happen once in a lifetime or even less. But as a result, the industry simply wasn't winterized. If you look at much colder climates, the oil and gas and, and power industry happily operate in minus 20 degrees. But you need to prepare your assets for it. And in Texas, the standards for this, but also the standards that the operators chose to apply, just couldn't cope with this co- kind of cold weather. And, uh, and, and that will give pause for some thought. And I think the the industry... Together with the regulator, we'll need to decide how much to winterize the infrastructure in Texas going forward, so that it can cope with the kind of extreme circumstances that we have seen. It is totally unnecessary from a from a fundamentals perspective. You can prepare your infrastructure for it, but it's more expensive, and that and that I think will now be the question: how much of that to do in order to make sure that in a future weather event, Texas can stay warm and well supplied.